Hello, welcome to an unexpected podcast. This is Matt in Boston, and we've got kind of a different crew today. Joining me today is Devin Moreno uh, from the DC Hobbit League, uh, James Clark, who's been a guest on this show before and no doubt will be again, um, who's the runner of Articon uh, up in Manchester, uh, one of the, if not the largest SPG tournament in the world. And we also have a special guest, and that is Harry Parkhill. From the Entmoot podcast. Hello. And uh, he is joining us. He is joining us for a specific reason. We have a, a, a bit of a, a bit of a change in format for today. And I want to explain how this came about. Uh, I was listening to the Entmoot podcast as I do, and Harry did a uh, you know a, a, a real a couple of really interesting bits on three D printing that was started off by one of his listeners writing in kind of discussing well 3d printing is it okay is it not okay and that got expanded into a uh you know a, a long i think multi-episode span where harry was addressing this question based on comments by his listeners uh and, and i thought this was really interesting so i i sent a text to my friend harry and i said harry you know would it be nice to um you know maybe create a panel where we could discuss this on an unexpected podcast. And Harry immediately texted back and said, who is this? <laughs> and I said, Harry, this is Matt from an unexpected podcast. You know, we, we've met at Articon. We've, uh, you know, I've been on your 24 hour show and Harry said, Oh, right. How did you get this number? Um, and, and that led to a long discussion um, at the end of which as part of a settlement that involved removing their restraining orders, Harry is now contractually obligated to come on and do this episode with us. True story. Uh, <laughs> yeah, interesting story. So, so Harry, so what we're going to do for format is um, we're going to go through a list, and this is going to be a list actually that Harry's written, because if you're familiar with an new podcast, Harry will put on his list that he's going to take to a tournament, talk about it, he's going to go to the tournament, and then he talks through how it did. So we're going to review one of his tournament lists, one of his Numenor tournament lists, because that's the cycle he's in right now. Um, but before we do that, Harry, if you want to give kind of a little background about how this topic came up and how it kind of spun out on your podcast, uh, and then we'll go into your list. Cool. Uh, yeah. So basically, uh, a guy, I, I think it's Nathan Kolkman. Um, forgive me if I've gotten that wrong. He emailed, he's an Australian listener. He emailed into uh, Entmoot, as some people do uh, occasionally from time to time, just asking random questions. And uh, he asked, do you think GW, uh, sorry, uh, 3D printing is killing GW or killing the game? Uh, and, and because he said essentially that lots of people in his area um, have been using 3D printed models and um basically they because australia it's a bit more difficult to get hold of certain models and um, so they argue he argued that you know maybe maybe it could be indirectly killing the game but he wondered because obviously so many people were doing it in his area and then from that i can't i, I basically just threw it out to listeners and um uh, i had so many responses like dozens of responses um it's clearly uh, touched a nerve in some way because people uh, i guess are seeing it everywhere you know every tournament you go to there's someone who's brought 3d printed models people in our local gaming group are printing models um and parts and spears and shields and all that sort of stuff uh so i was interested to see what people thought and um i think generally the the listeners were pretty much sort of on balance in favor of it so yeah it's 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 a really interesting debate and you can have hours of debate and i think it's 
there's probably a big grey area in the middle um, that that will probably stray, uh, stray into a lot. Um, but there are certainly opinions on two sides of a divide as well. Well, one thing we can certainly promise you on a night quick podcast is hours of debate. <laughs> um, whether or not that's useful or interesting in any way, we can't make any promises about. But we'll we'll give you hours of debate. Um, really? But before we do that, we're going to go through we're going to go through Harry's list, and I'm going to put that up on the screen here. Mm-hmm. Can you see the screen? I can certainly see it. And I can see it. Okay, great. Um, yeah, I never know when I do this what's what's going to happen. It's always a surprise because um, we're professionals here. Uh, so Harry, why don't you um, talk through the list and talk about the concept, and then we'll uh, you know kind of go through and give our thoughts. Cool. So um, as you mentioned, I'm going through a cycle of Numenor. Uh, I've been slowly painting up my worries of Numenor um, since um, last year, and I finally got to a place where I can actually run them um, at tournaments. And I'm going pure Numenor because not a lot of people um, do pure Numenor. So um, I wanted to, you know see how well that will go uh, at tournaments and this is uh, this is a list that's going to be taken in the next podcast um which you haven't heard yet um and i have recorded so i'm you're kind of going to be predicting how good this list is in the podcast so your 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 opinions will be on record and judged against my success rate so um Essentially, uh, we've got pure, um, as I say, so leader here is going to be Elendil, who's got his horse and a shield for 200 points. Uh, in his uh, warband, we've got 14 spear and shield uh, armed Numenorians um, at 10 points each. And then uh, a Numenorian banner spear and shield, which is 35. Uh, a Numenorian bowman uh, with spear, and there's three of those. So that's a full warband of 18 guys in Elendil's warband. And then uh, another warband with a captain who's also got horse. Uh, he's also got armor, shield, and lance. So he's all of the upgrades apart from the bow. And he's 75 points. And he comes with 10 Numenorean warriors with spear and shield, which I've spelt shield wrong um, on the thing and the thing. So apologize for that. Uh, and Numenorean bowmen with spear times two. Um, and for some reason, I've got Numenorean with shield. There aren't actually any of them in there. It must have been from twiddling the spreadsheet. So uh, rounded off 32 models, 600 points on the nose. Uh, you've got five bows, five points of might. Uh, and of course, you have three heroic combats and a pretty killy um, leader in Elendil who has his two-handed sword, Master Forge sword mm. uh, at strength five. So yeah, it's got some, uh, it's got some killy heroes and 32 troops. All right. Feel free so, to rip it apart. <laughs> no, you know, honestly, so when when a lot of times when we analyze these lists for like competitive value, one, we try to keep it within the confines of where it seems you want the list to be. So, you know, instinctually, I might say, oh, well, why not, you know, throw in uh, Rivendell in here? Well, let's keep this just with Numenor because it seems like that was absolutely the intent. Uh, so with that, you know, there's not a lot of options, in my opinion, to rip it apart because it's like, okay, you could either swap Elendale for you know a sealed or which that would grant you 40 points of which you could do nothing because your war bands are already maxed out and there's no way to upgrade your troops to much more than what they are it's not like you have elites or cavalry models that would you know enhance this list in any sort of way so options kind of limited especially without the ability to ally with the ability to ally that does become a conversation but um without it i think elendale is the right choice given i can't allocate those 40 points anywhere else uh 600 points elendale becomes an unstoppable monster. So I actually think uh, that's pretty encouraging <laughs> at this point level to see what you can do with it. Someone might bring a spellcaster too, but as we know, that's fairly irrelevant with Elendil. So 
Yeah, you he know, has um, the uh, fortify spirit on him all the time. Two free resist rolls. He's he's pretty, exactly pretty tanky. Uh, I mean, other than that, I mean, within the, the the bounds of the list, I mean, you have the bowmen. They're armed with spears appropriately. Allowed that spear support once combat's inevitably uh, hit because you're clearly not trying to shoot your opponent off the field, but more encourage them to engage um, on your terms, at least if they don't have any bows at all. Um, otherwise, I mean, you're stacked with spears. Uh, I I guess if you know, even even with me trying to like say like, oh well, what if we downgrade a Sildor down to or downgrade Elendil to a Sildor, take some spears away? Could we fit like one more captain? And that's yeah. like kind of the only way that I can really like make this list different. But I would argue that Elendil probably brings more to this than the captain would. Uh, but you know, I'd have to play with the points and make sure that actually lands correctly, uh, which I might do in my head as someone else, uh, you know, talks about their thoughts on this. But overall, unfortunately, I guess that means I have like no advice. <laughs> the list is written within the confines of Dubador. So, James, you want to give your thoughts before I jump in, or yeah, absolutely. I mean, last time I was on this podcast, you made me follow your. Son Evan. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm much easier to follow. my son Devin. In that situation, there wasn't really much more I could add. But thankfully, due to Harry's list, there isn't an awful lot that there is to add here because of the confines of it being Numenor. You know, there's mm-hmm. not a huge number of options. I think Devin's pretty much said everything that needs to be said. You know, in terms of a list like this, it's quite similar, I suppose, to the helm hammerhand legion in that sense that Elendil obviously has to do an awful lot but he can do an awful lot you know whilst it's got a relatively low amount of might the free heroic combats means that obviously he is going to be shouldering the brunt of the killing power of this force and then it's just going to be about making sure that you're smart in terms of the objective play and the scenarios so I think that Devin pretty much hit the nail on the head of everything. It's not a bad number of models either. You know, 32 models for a good army at 600 points is it's okay. You know, it's not it's not loads, but it's okay. It can do stuff. It's heavily reliant on its leader, Elendil. But what more is there to say? Not a lot, really. Can I, so, so, so out of interest, if, if we were to allow the alliance, what, what would you guys do? Because it's clear that maybe I've made the peak pure Numenor force. Maybe. But I mean, that's not saying a lot, is it? <laughs> close. Um, but here, so so answer answer that, and then I'll I'll jump in because this this is a list. I, I know I get accused of saying this all the time. This is a list I play, um, so uh, so I can give you some experience based feedback. But as far as the Kevin and James, why don't you talk about how you might think about allying stuff there? So I'm gonna grab. A book <laughs> where I can look at the alliance. I, I have no book. I'm not sure any of these books will do. Green <laughs> <laughs> yeah. little pig, or even fairies need glasses. Maybe not going to be All particularly. Right. I think the key thing, if I was going to be looking to ally, would be making sure that obviously, if you're bringing in elves, you're adding. An extra expense there you know so you're going to be looking at some of the cheaper elven heroes really to supplement this in order to get the fight five probably backline i would say 
um, to the army. But that again, it's that's the only real change I'd be looking at. Looking at, however, then you do lose the the march from the captain, um, which can be quite important with this list as well. Being able to have that speed, and to be fair, Numenorean captain armor, shield, and lance. You know, on the horse can do a bit of damage as well. So. That would be the trade-off there. I wouldn't be too keen on lowering the numbers much further than where it is now. So if you are going to be allying in the elves, then that's going to be the consideration. And also then if you're allying in the elves, are you going to want to take the direction of playing more to the strength of having a more powerful bow contingent and actually maxing out the bows? Whereas with this list, it's quite clear that it's there as an option. It's there so that you're not in a situation where you are completely forced to chase the game. It's a threat. It makes your opponent still have to think, even though it's not necessarily going to win or lose you the games in terms of models killed, but in terms of some of the decision-making, it can impact that. So that then becomes another part of the decision-making if you bring in elves. Like, am I actually going to try and max out that bow limit and make that more of a threat? Like like I say, I actually quite like this this list, you know, it's simple, it's straightforward, you kind of know what you need to do with it. That should make playing it a little bit more simple. It is going to mean that if you have a history of playing with uh, big heroes in particular, or maybe in the past, pre the new edition, I say new edition, it's been around for a long time, but it's still, still new to me in my mind, um, playing like all hero lists and the like, then that's going to give you... Um, I think an advantage with this kind of list because you've got to do a lot with Elendil and you've got to be able to make sure that those numbers of yours aren't whittling away down too quickly. You know, you have to remember what those troops are really there for and it's more to be around in that late game um, and to kind of force decision-making of your opponents, getting objectives, that kind of side of it. So that's my, my overall assessment. I Like I say, I quite like this list as it is. All right, well... I suppose I'll comment on what my thought process here is if I were to ally. All right. So not saying that that's required. I actually agree a lot with what James said about the, the list is simple. It does what it needs to do. Um, allying. If I were to do that, I also agree with James that you, you don't want to reduce the numbers unless for some reason you're in how, or some way you're enhancing the, the defensive nature of this list, which is really hard to do. So so I'm going to try to keep the numbers the same, which restricts me, in my opinion, to a 75-point hero. So then we kind of look at, okay, what would allying even bring to the table? Um, I would actually, so a lot of people know me, I would consider uh, even impossible alliances. I'm, you know, not theme at all sometimes. <laughs> but, but for this list, I would not do an impossible alliance because the only way I would go that direction is if I'm bringing something like, for this particular list, a very hard-hitting hero who's coming by himself who's also very defensive where i don't have to worry about them dying so that my army breaks automatically i would not bring in troops with an impossible mm -hmm. alliance because that makes breaking just so much easier so that really leaves out all the options except for elves and eagles um i don't think that eagles is a good choice here it'll lower your numbers obviously too much so uh you know despite getting wire so now uh if numenorians were more tank like like iron hills dwarves then maybe but probably not you'd be still reduced to like 50 15 men uh so then leaving it at the elves, um, you know, you can stay historical, keep your bonus of plus one courage, you know, I suppose. Uh, or you can go to Mirkwood, <clears throat> which is the only other one I can think of. They don't really add a lot of differences. They add the kind of the same thing, right? Like you're getting the five five. That's ultimately what you're asking for. So it's like, okay, can I keep five five at, you know, 10 points, which is essentially what the cost of all your guys are. Um, yeah. 
I mean, an elf with just a spear would contribute five, five bonuses across your lines. Um, that's not bad. I mean, at 600 points, I mean, I might consider doing that. So then what do you get for that 75 point captain swap, uh, either guild or, and you want to throw in some magic into the list, which not necessary. You lose a point of might, which is a little bit disheartening, but he does have March. So you still have that. Um, lose killing power as well. Guild you lose a lot of killing. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's what I was going to say. You can't, you can't get rid of that either way though. I mean, if you take a captain, you're getting a fight six hero, but they're on foot. So that leads me to be like, all right, maybe palace guard captains from Merkwood, who, but you won't have Thranduil, so that's irrelevant. So yeah, you're, you're going to lose a lot of killing power with that hero. Um, other than that, though, you're, so you're reducing the killing power from that one hero, whom arguably is probably spending a point of might to do heroic combats. I'm sorry, heroic moves and heroic marches. So really... That hero is just being thrown in there with no might because chances are you're gonna save that might for a heroic move when the combat lines have met. Maybe Elon deals, he's done a, too many heroic combats and he's far out of position, and now he, you've caught him in a position where you need to readjust and you need a heroic move. So you're gonna probably keep it there. Um, <clears throat> leave Elon deals might for just the, the combats, in which case that's kind of like, I mean, how much killing power is just a captain on horse with a lance? I mean, it's, it's not bad. Well, in my, in my experience, because um, I've only played this at lower points, um, mm. and usually Elendil, I, I actually use his his might for moves because mm. he's fight seven. He doesn't often have to heroic strike, and um, he's got free heroic combat. So the only thing I'm using it for is to bump up my dice roll to win the fight when I flubbed it, or um, or to do potentially the old heroic move. So uh, the captain does get in there with the might often because again, you want I like to save him some might for, for winning fights as well. Then this may be just a playstyle difference. In my mind, because the heroic, your list relies on Elendil doing his job. If he fails a combat or fails to wound on a heroic combat where it's like one model and then you can move something else, to me, the might is reserved entirely for that focus. If he stops killing four models a turn or at minimum three, then the opponent can start to slaughter into that defense five army that you have and start to just hold off Elendil as long as possible. So in my mind, if he's not killing three models a turn, I am extremely disappointed. Mm -hmm. um, it, unless, obviously, he's killing a hero, which, you know, arguably, then that's probably more valuable. So... That's probably a play style difference than in that situation where I'm just like, so, you know, look, three dice plus one for a charge is great, but <laughs> we've all seen that flub and like, you know, you need that extra boost. You have a banner. Okay. So that's helpful. Uh, I don't, you know, depending on how you position Elon deal, he might always be in range of that, but that's, that might be just a play style difference then. So if, in, if that's the case, then yeah, you, you significantly in that case, if you have a hero, with a point of might with Lance and cat uh, horse, and he has a point of might to do a heroic combat as well, then changing to elves may not be worth the fight five across the army. Um, you know, because you are you're gonna be reduced down to a fight six hero on foot. Not bad. Uh, that might be a way I go, but that's the only way uh, alliance I could say. Like, not to be cliche of the last alliance, but kind of within the options of the historical lines of God. That's why I would ally. Turn your entire battle on into a fight five army and then get an elven hero whom can wear out the might of most fight five heroes in the game because now they have to potentially heroic strike just to fight them. But that's my fault. So. How do I sound now? 
Yeah, much better. Okay. Well, yeah. So if you've got a condenser microphone, it always helps to turn it on. Um, so uh, apologies to everyone out there who couldn't hear a word that I said earlier on in the podcast. I hope uh, you don't have to crank your volume up too high. But um, so so my thoughts on this, look, Harry, I'm going to come at this from the perspective of, of pure Numenor because I've tried to run pure Numenor at this points level. And there, there's two basic ways to do it. You can do uh, a Lendl and a captain, or you can do Isildur and two captains. Um, if, if you do Isildur and two captains, it doesn't bump your numbers up that much. You get up to like between 34 and 36 models. And that's not enough with the extra two points of might to counteract the loss of firepower that you lose from a Lendil. So I think this is the way to do it. Um, so let me ask you a question. I think you could have a total of 10 bows in this or 10 bows. I, I thought it was five. No, uh, I have yeah, five, but he I has five. He yet. could have had 10. And I'm no. wondering what the thought process was there. Um, largely to do with them. They're not being that good um, bows. They're just strength two bows. They're hitting on fours. Um, and once I lose a bow guy, I lose a guy with defense five. So because they become defense four. So, you, you know, you don't get the defense bonus if you've got a bow and a shield. So it's already a low defense army. I don't want to be exposing myself to strength four troops as well as strength three. And um, so I kind of feel like there, there's enough there to, to if, as as I think Devin said earlier, that, you know, you can fire five bows. And if there's that the opponent doesn't have any great, I can maybe take out a horse, maybe kill a couple of guys that might help. But realistically, I don't expect them to be doing a lot of damage with bows. But I'm, I'm sensing that you're setting me up here to say that's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, maybe, maybe not. Uh, tell me a little bit about this tournament. Was it a veto system, or was it was it just kind of straight uh, random? There scenarios? is there is veto system on day two. It's podded, so you first day it's like a Swiss rank tournament. Uh, you land yourself into a pod on day two based on how well you do on day one, um, and then you can then play three scenarios vetoed with a gotcha. veto system. Okay. Um, so look. Uh, yeah, that, that was really my only thought here on how to adjust this because, you know, as everybody's pointed out, you know, you're you're at you're at full slots if you're gonna take this loadout. And there's a limited amount you can do to kind of monkey with this. I think the one thing to monkey would be to increase bows. You know, I, I understand your thought process and it's valid. Um, and especially in a veto tournament, if you are going to get into a position where you can kind of get up in people's faces, then maybe bows are less important. The only reason to kind of max out bows here, I understand their strength to bows, is to get yourself in a position where you can draw as many armies as possible towards you. Um, because when you use a land deal, especially at this points level, the critical phase in the game is like the turn before the, the shield walls clash. Because um, that's the time when a land deal can come out and and pick stuff off right once the shield walls clash everything gets clogged together and where lendil ends up going ends up being dictated kind of by where the shield walls clash and where there's an available target for him to go in and kill it's that turn when you're like six seven inches away and a lendil's in range and everybody else is not um when a lendil can really kind of choose what he wants to do and that's easier to arrange if the enemy has to march, march towards you. And, you know, I, I get with 
you know, with 10, but with 10 regular bows, there are going to be a lot of situations where regardless, you're going to have to march towards him. Cause if you're playing Rangers of Athelion or, or if you're playing, playing Harad, or if you're playing like somebody with a dozen elf bows, um, you're going to have to march towards mm-hmm. him anyway. Mm-hmm. But with 10 bows, as opposed to five bows, the guy who's a, you know, like the Easterling guy who has three bows is going to have to march towards you. Um, because, you know, it's a gun duel and he will eventually lose that. Um, and that's the situation that you want to engineer as many times as possible. And then ideally in a veto system, if you're playing up against somebody who outbows you, um, then you want to choose a scenario where you can start as close to his face as possible so that shooting doesn't matter and then just charge in. Um, and yeah, th- look, you know, this is this is an all eggs in one basket list. Um, this the Numenorians on their own aren't going to win a scenario because um, there aren't enough of them in their defense five, and it's going to come down to a Lendil. Um, and then you you just have to think about when you're using this list, how do I engineer the maximum benefit after a Lendil or out of a Lendil? And it's going to be in that approach march period. Um, to get into a position where, I mean, ideally what Elendil wants to do is he wants to hit the uh, the non-striking characters and kill them first. And you know, ideally, you know, you can actually pull off two of them. Um, and, you know, I've done this in a, in a list where Elendil and Isildur killed off like every Isengard hero in the other guy's army in one turn just by, you know, they each went in to one guy, killed, called a heroic combat, went into the other guy's. Um, you know, that depends on the guy kind of putting his heroes in the front rank where you can kill them. But, uh, you know, even even so, you know, you can you can go into a uh, a hero and then kind of maybe like catapult a Lendil around to the back to get a guy. Or you can go into a regular guy and then call that free heroic combat and then go into somebody else. Um, and, you know, the other tactic to do with him is. If the guys that are in the front rank are striking heroes, you do not want to put a Lendil into a striking hero initially. What you want to do is you want to charge random dude, um, call the free heroic combat, and then make everybody around him either waste the point of mind on a heroic strike or die when he heroic combats into them. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I, I have found with this list that if I can pull that off, I will win the game. If I can't pull that off and a Lendil ends up going in against a striking hero and gets clogged up there for half the game, I lose. Um, and, you know, that that the only reason I'm saying maybe think about put more bows in this is because that's it, it creates a situation where some more often you're going to be drawing the opposing guy toward you, which is what you want, because then mm-hmm. he's got he's, he's got two options. He can put his guys in the front where Lendl can, you know, pick them off and, and chew them up. Or he can put his guys in the back where you can then like it, once you're within six inches, you could run forward with your line and lock out all of his heroes while you kill all of his guys. I, um, I do find it that I'm hesitating to turn your uh, high cost defense five army into a high cost defense four <laughs> like army. But... It, it's it's five guys and they're going to be in the second rank. So well, it's 10 total, right? Like, cause you were talking about 10. He, he's got, he's got five and he's well, yeah. five more. So we yeah. now have 10 guys in this 31, two model army that are defense four. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, it is an apples and oranges thing though. Right. You know, yeah. it really is one of those that you kind of talk coin toss and it depends on your, your play style, either about your matchup. He's done, yeah, he, he's done the right thing in terms of not 
abandon the bows completely and every egg is in that basket it's you look i've still got them i've still got the flexibility i can try and put pressure on enemy models that are on objectives i can put pressure on enemy hero horses it's more about what it does to the opponent's decision making than the actual effect of the bow yeah. so I, I i like that that side but i'm normally one of those as well that one of the first things i'll do when i want to see a list is i'll be like right as it maxed out its bows but in this case given how important a lender is and the frailty, I suppose, at the points level of the troops that are kind of there already and what they're there to do. I think it's good that they're there. It then does just become a coin a coin toss whether you want to go more, am I going to take extra five bows or not? So both both are valid, I think. I'm very remember, reassured everybody... by your assessments, by the way, guys. This is great. Oh, I'm sorry, Harry. <laughs> I was just saying I'm reassured by your assessments of my list. This is this is good news. <laughs> have you played with a have you played with a list like this before? Because I know I, I know that you've got a lot of history with the Easterlings, but that big, big hero that has to do an awful lot and then being cautious enough whilst not being completely passive with your with your main body of your eye. have you played with an army like that before and yeah i mean i've uh i've i've done my fair share of stuff with sauron and aragorn lsr alongside gandalf the white so i i, I like to think my my favorite thing is playing with a big hero and over the years i guess i have gotten a little bit better at it but yeah um i think it's actually i think in this one you're right the ellendil does a lot of chopping but it's it's also really important that you're very protective of your D5 troops that, you know, you've got to put them in the right places because otherwise it could all go very wrong very quickly. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a careful balance, isn't it? Because Alendil has to do a, an awful lot. He can't be completely isolated and vulnerable because so much of your, your points are stacked into him and you're relying so much on him to do the work. But at the same time, you don't want to be whittling down, having your number. You know, it's not a grind. This is not going to be one that's going to win many of the grind up matchups unless you are super, super kind of lucky uh, in a lot of ways. And that's another point to bring into it from a tournament perspective. You know, we are playing in a tournament across six games. If you are playing a list where eggs are in one basket, variance alone will make at least one of those games a more disappointing experience than you mm -hmm. might. Obviously, it's incredibly satisfying when we've got an Alessa or an Elendil or a Bayorn and we have those games where they're just munching everything, not always for our opponents, but where they just do what they're supposed to do. But there is going to be that one game where you charge in on a heroic combat and you roll four ones and somehow he dies. Mm -hmm. and you'll think, what's happened here? And in, across a tournament, that's obviously going to be more likely. Um so yeah, I mean they're great fun to play with, aren't they? It's like the helm hammer hand lists and stuff, and I think at six hundred points as well, you know, I mean he's 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 very good from a defensive capacity, but you know there aren't going to be many things that can stand up to him at, at six hundred points. It's just being cautious and careful, I suppose, with with how you do the whole thing. Just to bring up something again that um, Devin said, I you know I I would recommend to the extent you can, you don't spend the might on a Lendil. Just because, and, and you know, spend it, spend it with your captain. And this is one of the reasons why, you know, when I do this, I throw as many bows as I can in here because I don't want to. I don't want to have to march. I want to have to march mm -hmm. as little as possible, and because I want that captain's might for a move. 
because as James said, there's going to be that situation where you need, you know, does despite a Lendl and despite the fact that you're very careful always to commit him within three inches of a banner, there's going to be that time where he flubs it and he needs that point of might to win or else he's going to lose his horse. And, you know, if he loses his horse on like the first turn of, of combat, you've got a real problem. So you mm. kind of need that might to win the fight just in case something goes horribly wrong. Yeah, I would be dreading win- losing that fight. Every single fight. Yeah. Um, having said that, um, Legolas um, is a thing. Oh. And, uh, but, you know, <laughs> I, you do you do lose your horse. And, and, and he is one of the few heroes in the game that he can still be pretty reliable um, with a free heroic combat strength five plus one. Legolas is not as pervasive as he was back no, in the true. Uh, You know, yes, if, yeah, absolutely. He is a thing. But I definitely don't see him dropped into lists at least here in America, nearly at that level anymore. Yeah. So, but may- maybe in England, they're just like still on the legless high. And <laughs> just... I can't remember. Does, does Fortify Spirit protect the horse from black darts? Yes, it does. Yeah. Does. It's the whole okay. model. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So at least, at least, at least that's a thing. Yeah. Um. So, all right. Cool. Well, all right. So I'm, I'm really excited to look forward to the Entmoot podcast to see how this did. So. Hopefully, I don't know how slow you are at plating these things, but hopefully by the time this comes out, uh, mine also will be out. All right. Sounds great. Um, and uh, yeah, so I think we're all kind of in favor of this list. So obviously, if if it doesn't work out, Harry, it's it's all the driver's fault. <laughs> yep, yeah, exactly. Almost certainly, yeah. <laughs> all right. Um, so let, let's transition to... Um, to the the main event of the podcast, which is you know the debate over I, what I've been calling in my head the ethics of three D printing. Um, so what we're going to do is you know I, I've kind of assigned roles to people, and I've assigned roles to people not necessarily because they believe in their heart of hearts to the extremes <laughs> that they're going to go when they argue it, but um, because you know these things always work better when one one person has a position to advocate rather than everybody kind of coming out saying, well, there's a gray area in the middle. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to start with with James. And uh, we're starting with James. James at Articon, uh, you know, famously, um, non-GW models are not allowed. Um, and they're not allowed for a reason. Um, so James, I want you to, to, to advocate the 3D printing is bad um, position. And then we're going to go and we're going to talk to Devin and Harry. And then I'm going to come back around again and and I'm going to play devil's advocate and kind of force you to defend your positions. Yes, bro well, IP infringement. No. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Well, that given my relationships that I've been given this position. <laughs> okay, so to start off my argument, let me take you on a, a trip down memory lane for those who have a long, long memory and Back at the time when we thought that this game was going to go kaboosh, it was disappearing. It's been a long time since we'd had a release, and there was a lot of talk in the community that GW was going to be giving up its license, that there would be no further rule books made, there'd be no new edition of the game, no more models. I think our previous supplement had been reasonably token, I think, with the Battle of Five Armies, which is kind of like yeah. just a little seven-page insert thing. Um, you know, which did give us Megalas, which was great fun at Nova, <laughs> by the way. Loved using that profile. Lots of fun. Probably not the right things to do, but it sold some models. Um, 
and back at that time, you know, for anybody who who is of that time and uh, aged in a similar way that I have, then you will remember that, that the tagline was support your Hobbit hobby, um, you know, which was you know, do, do our best to keep this game going. And there was a lot of discussion at the time about how we would do that without um, official support, official Games Workshop support. And a lot of that was going to be through, uh, a lot of the discussion was third-party miniatures. Uh, 3D printing hadn't quite got to its eminence at that point. That's how far how long ago we're talking mm. um and even a living rule book which other systems have had to do themselves in the past and then of course everything changed everything changed and all of a sudden new life was breathed into this game from the company with the release of the iron hills dwarves and then we went on to have the the uh, the the new edition of course with the pelinor fields box and a real urgency and engagement with the community which you know we obviously saw that at the first article with the iron hills release being done there we've seen friends of ours who players who turned up to these independent tournaments uh, particularly obviously in the uk go on and receive jobs you know passionate people who've loved this game for a long 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 time go and take up jobs within the teams that were set up to support this game going forwards and like I say, there's a huge amount of goodwill and, um, you know, interaction, I suppose. We were receiving seminars and all that kind of thing. So we as a community were rewarded for that tagline, for support your Hobbit hobby. It certainly felt that way, that without that huge community push through, um, certainly in the UK, the Great British Hobbit League and all those independent TOs and all of their communities around their localities and then of course that extending across the world and people putting out content and the like it felt like because of that massive community effort to keep this game going that it ended up keeping on going now of course with 3d printing coming along it makes it much easier and much cheaper to do what a lot of the third party miniature companies were doing before and that obviously comes at a price. Now, obviously, I'm, I'm here to not go too much into the grey area early on, but to establish a case. So one of the reasons why at Articon, you know, there are no third-party miniatures allowed. We don't allow 3D printed products. While we really encourage the official products of Games Workshop is because Games Workshop has actively supported this event for such a long period of time. And I think that shows where Games Workshop have been in this new age of Middle-earth, is wanting to engage with the community and i think that's a very privileged position we've gone on to see not just one or two of our friends and community members and people who go to these tournaments go and work for games workshop but quite a few you know i can i can think of over five people just off the top of my head who, who now work within that company and so there's part of me that feels that generally that there is a sense of responsibility to continue that effort that even though we are in this new age where there are there's clearly an expanded player base it's clearly a lot more new players there's hundreds and hundreds more tournaments but everything that kind of led us up to this point if everybody was to turn away from the products themselves would obviously disintegrate that you know we have an interest those of us that can to continue to invest in 
the system that we love so that we continue to get new books and new rules. And a big part of that is obviously continuing to buy the official models rather than third parties or recasts or replicas. Now, I'm going to put a slight caveat on that, which is that obviously not everybody will feel that they're in a position to, but you could extend this to any part of society, right? You know, if we look at percentage of people, all of us could probably find a place where we could go and get a pirate DVD, if that's a thing anymore, <laughs> within the, in the digital age, you know, where we can go and do that. But there are many, many more of us who will still buy the official DVD, even though we could get it so much cheaper. Loads of people can get a knock knockoff cable, satellite, TV, dodgy boxes, etc. Eleanor's just walked in. Go away. <laughs> um, people can do that, but actually the vast swathe of people continue to, you know, support what are actually faceless corporations, as opposed to we're in a situation where we have a much more community engaged company that we are that we are talking about. Friends who work and rely on that company, um, you know, for their for their incomes and continue to engage. And I think that if there is too much of a tilting in a particular direction that that is threatened. And it's not that it's something that I think it's, you know, it has to be completely cast aside. I think that it has its place. I think that one thing that it can do very, very well is make it much more viable for there to be a lot more um, tournaments and organizers and interesting, um, you know, independent gaming tables that might attract people to the game because somebody might be able to see some terrain that maybe isn't Middle Earth, but, you know, kind of has that and people are playing with it. I think it's it has, there is a potential there for good also. But I think when it comes to actual miniatures themselves, I think that that's when we start to tread a line and have to be careful with that. And then obviously Ardicon's committed to the relationship that we have with GW and very thankful for the support that we've received over the years. Uh, and we'll obviously never sacrifice the benefits of that for, you know, the flip side of the coin. And and yes, it's going to be cheap. I mean, this happened before even um, 3D printing. Of course, we all know of certain eBay sites where there are people who recast the old metal models and all that. You know, this has been going on for a long time in various forms. Just 3D printing makes it a bit more accessible and cheaper and i suppose in our face it's very much the new thing so it's just at what point is that going to affect the business in a way that we're not actually continuing able to benefit from all of the stuff that we get from supporting the game the company and from my perspective what's more important the employees who are you know passionate about the system and passionate about the community engaged yeah and um <clears throat> just to establish my position on this before I jump into a whole topic that, you know, so I, the days that James actually talked about the support your hobby hobby and everything that happened in the community to actually keep this game alive. Uh, if the, you know, I'm, I was definitely part of that. Um, I definitely can understand, you know, the argument for it. Cause this game would not exist if we did just start mass purchasing like three, if that was available at the time, mass produce, you know, uh, purchasing these other types of models, the game as we know, it would not even exist. So I do agree. Like for this whole conversation, I at least want that to be in the background of like 100% I'm on that board, that train, like the, this whole thing does not exist. I think, you know, 
for the American scene, Americans tend to be a bit more disconnected from the uh, the GBHL um, from Games Workshop. And so Games Workshop is just kind of seen as some corporation, uh, you know, Actually, that's one of the reasons I was so hard pressed to bring GW staff to Nova Open and to make that a very much more real human experience than simply they're just some, you know, because there's some people, especially Americans who watch this, they'll hear what James said and and they'll hear, okay, so what if the company, you know, falls apart and whatever, that's capitalism, like, you know, survival of the fittest, you know, if you, you know, if you can get the minimum church cheaper, then figure out a way to do it, compete. And uh, given our society is capitalist by nature, plus in the fact that GW is just, it's just a name to many of them. Um, So I do want to also keep, create that frame of reference when uh, I also talk about different points. It's one thing like, you know, I think our community has just learned who Adam Troke was in recent years and the relatively recent, like who these people are who actually support this hobby. Um, And we don't receive as much GW direct support as Articon. Um, actually, you know, you know, as far as Nova, I think, you know, I think only one year, uh, maybe two max do we actually receive direct, you know, despite GW being present at the convention. Um, but if it's not that, then pretty much most of the tournaments throughout the U S do not receive GW support with the exception of maybe Adepticon. So, uh, for the most part, um, so just keep creating that frame of reference for this conversation going forward, like. You know, because um, I, I think that was an excellent point. James mentioned that this is definitely more it, it hits home a lot harder if this company goes under due to well, not the company. OK, the company's fine, but we the game system, right? It hits home a lot harder if our game system goes under due to everyone just being like, OK, you know, um, so just wanted to throw that out there, you know, but. <clears throat> Harry. So um, uh, similarly, I, I won't preamble this with loads of caveats, but uh, but essentially, I, I get the impression from from my listeners that that the pendulum has swung from support your Hobbit hobby to, you know what, they're not supporting us as hobbyists enough anymore to to counteract the idea of three D printing. And again, I, you know, I, I'm. I, I'm consistently buying, you know, the GW miniatures. This is blurred out, but this is a Numenor. This is a proper classic 20 plus year old uh, Numenorian guy. And I've got a lot of them. And I'm very much in favor of continuing to buy them because A, nostalgia and B, that they are the true likenesses of the movie. So I, I'm I'm quite happy to continue and I probably will. I'm lucky enough to be able to afford them. But I realize that not everyone is. And there, there's also a small proportion of the um, the player base who at the moment essentially are kind of locked out of collecting the army that they want to collect so the the, the current system that uh, games workshop has for rotating stock um made to orders um, and so on for uh, the lord of the rings range for for whatever reason gw has and you know they have probably very good reasons for it um i i do i, I feel for those people who who really like the idea of collecting a mahud army or a uh, I don't know, a Hobbit army or whatever it is that's out of stock at the moment or an Arnor army. I know that's that's one of them that often crops up. So it it, it does feel like us, as uh, James and, and I and, and Devon perhaps as well, are, and, and probably Matt, you've all got the armies in big boxes and we've all got them all sort of stacked up and maybe we'll get to them eventually. Um, but there are newer players that don't have that luxury. And to them, it's like, 
oh, look, I've opened this really exciting book. I see this, I see that, I see this, the other. They stoke their imaginations and they go to the GW website and they don't find the uh, the models available. They're not even listed. Sometimes they're out of stock constantly and so on. And, and I can see the argument from the side of, of, you know, the Support the Hobbit hobby. Click that email link. That would therefore mean Games Workshop knows that, uh, that there's interest in this. Therefore, they'll put more resources into making these. Therefore, maybe put more resources into the game as a whole we'll get more models eventually down the road. That's, I guess, the argument. But to many, it's like, well, why would I hit that link when I can just search um, 3D printed model, come up with a, a plethora of Lord of the Rings-based miniatures that that can do a similar job. Um, and yeah, so I, I think that's that's where I come from this. Again, I'm I'm generally very ambiguous. I'm not really sure what I think about it in... in in the in terms of the ethics of, of print so for example i've got a 3d printed hair model to show you this is rings of powers uh galadriel um, yeah. my friend printed me this one for he said pennies um and you know i like the look of that games workshop's not making it i was interested in that and i might paint it um whether it makes it to the tabletop i don't know um but certainly I can understand why people would go to this because they don't maybe have the luxuries uh, uh you know as gamers who are a bit more long in the tooth as it were um have so and and those people are buying models they're printing models or wherever they're getting from third party uh 3d printer makers and they're bringing them and playing a game with me and you know that that's good for me because i like to play the game so do they we all have a good time um, we all recreate games in the Lord of the Rings world using, crucially, using the rules um, that, that Games Workshop makes. So whether or not they make Games Workshop will make enough out of the rules alone to support the game or not is a very different matter. But I, again, I'm I'm not 100% in favour of 3D printing and, and I'd certainly completely with a lot of what James just said. But um, yeah, I, I can, I, I do feel for people who, who do feel like they're, the, the company's just not providing what they want. And actually, I think all three of us are framing this around the players buying the individual, so the models. So not <laughs> that I think all of us agree that the the little manufacturers who are mass producing, mass marketing as if they have a license from, you know, New Line or whoever owns the IP at this point, that is not in this conversation. It's mm. just, okay, if we see it on eBay, it exists. The players purchasing the models, where are the ethics behind that? Because I think we all agree that doing the illegal stuff, at least within all the company uh, countries that this game is played, it's pretty illegal. So, yeah. yeah, I guess so. there's, a, there's a slight difference between making generic <laughs> Anglo-Saxon models, you know, yeah. use a historical <laughs> miniature instead of a... Uh, a hus uh, I don't know, a Huskarl from yeah. uh, Dunland or something like that. But yes, yeah, if you're literally copying and pasting a a model that looks suspiciously well, like Galadriel. <laughs> see, in in the case of that though, that's not being mass marketed, mass produced. You're no, you're creating it for just you, right? Yeah, so that's has, yeah. that's kind of not what we're talking about. Certain there are certain third party miniatures. I'm going to call them companies loosely whom mass market, mass produce. But I just want to make sure the conversation. I think we all agree. Like we're not talking about the ethics of should they be able to make them <laughs> but sort of like what you just had you had a friend who printed this one model for specifically you you reimbursed his cost of doing so so it's not like some for-profit business that he's trying to construct should we as tournament organizers allow that into a tournament or if that model was exactly of a replica of you know gw what you have mentioned before models being out of print 
you know, models that are unavailable or just cheaper. <laughs> Should we allow that? So I think I just to frame the kind of where the conversation can stay. I mean, unless you guys disagree and you think we should talk about the companies well, that produce them. Let, let, all right. So let me, let me press you on that. Right. Um, and, and make sure that we're, we're drawing the lines in the right places. Um, because it, it sounds like you're drawing a line between, you know, a company that is kind of mass producing, mass producing figures and a company that is just made you know, or, or a person that's making a few figures. Mm. Um, and, and I'm not, <clears throat> I'm not sure that scale makes a difference here in in determining whether this is this right or wrong, right? Um, because well, I just meant for like whatever would be illegal in international distribution. Yeah, but you're right though. It's either a, it's either a copy of something or it's not. And if it's, yeah. if it's well, I'm not, I don't know. I don't know the law. Hundred times is different. Go yeah. on, what are you saying, James? I mean, our hard positions that we start to have are going to immediately start breaking down because this is obviously a heavily nuanced subject. Yeah. You know, we used to refer to it on the GHL podcast as a sliding scale of what's uh, what's going on, what's not. We're already kind of hitting into that marker, isn't it? Like, I would actually, I think I would slightly disagree that because I think intent is everything here as well. Like, intent makes a big difference. So if somebody is creating a business in order to and then a mass producing something which is a copyright infringement and then marketing that to sell i think that that is different from somebody maybe you know creating a handful of models for themselves or some friends not for monetary gain i do think that that's different now whether that should be allowed at various tournaments or not i think that comes down to the tournament organizers and their and their alliances <laughs> You know, Harry brought up some very, very good points before in that actually, you know, something like that can be sometimes helpful in order to get some players into the game. You know, it's a bit more immersive than, let's say, you know, just using a base with a written name of a profile on which somebody could do if they wanted to learn the thing, but they're still getting to use a model. Maybe they're just not in that position to do it because they're not available or, you know, maybe there is some kind of monetary thing there. But that still doesn't mean that they're going to be able to take that to Articon or to Throne of Skulls in Nottingham or whatever else. So I, I do just, think... Well, sorry, I was just going to add that you say about monetary gain and so on. Um, so, so a lot of these are uh, what, what are called STLs, which are these downloadable. So someone designs it and they upload it either for free or you can pay for said design. Um, so this one, I think, was a free... STL that a guy printed for me for free or yeah. a net cost of a couple of grams of resin. So uh, like he, the person who designed this is doing it because he wants people to be able to use uh, or, or she wants to use um, or make paint Galadriel models from the Rings of Power. And they're not necessarily making any money out of it. But I, I guess the, the point is they could, you could argue they are taking money away from Games Workshop. By doing which, which is right which is right which is where i was going to go right which is that you know legally one could make a distinction between am i doing this for personal use or and or am i making a profit off of it but you know harry as you just pointed out if, if the injury that if the injury that we're worried about here is damage to games workshop um then that that injury occurs either way because whether or not, if I'm making miniatures for people, and as a result of me making miniatures for people, you are not buying GW alternatives, 
VW is injured regardless of whether I'm making a profit on it. Um, you know, which, and, and so, yeah, just to be clear to listeners, um, yeah, because the obvious comeback from you, Harry, is yeah, but why do I care, right? Games Workshop is a, is a big corporation, and you know, if, if I don't buy one figure, does that really make a difference in their bottom line? Um, so, so let's talk a little bit about why why we care, right? And I mean, what's what's lurking in the back here? I mean, well, okay. Before we go there, actually, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go to James, um, and so. So James, I mean, you you made the point early on, you know, why we should care, right? And why we should care is that you know there was a time when it was far from clear that that the Hobbit hobby, the the strategy battle game rules were going to continue to exist because Games Workshop really wasn't supporting it, and it was going to you know kind of like drift off, you know, right off into the sunset, and nobody was going to support it anymore. Um, and you know, the the solution that you were you know advocating perhaps because I made you advocate it or because perhaps because <laughs> you actually believe it um was that you know we should we should give our money to games workshop because if we don't give our money to games workshop this is going to go away but of course that allows games workshop basically to kind of like dictate the scale and 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 prices that are involved in the game, right? If we have to go to Games Workshop to buy stuff, there's a legal term for that. It's called a monopoly. Um, and you know, and they most bought people that think, monopoly, and that's the thing. They bought that monopoly. Basically. Well, okay, right. They they bought that monopoly. Um, so so this is this is the idea of the license, right? Mm. Um, and it, to a certain extent, they did buy that monopoly, and that's a license to do um middle earth stuff uh and that costs money all right so so james has now made the point now i'm going to go back to you harry and um because that was the that was the point that i wanted to bring out so there's this license right mm -hmm. that games workshop has and unlike the people who 3d print they have to pay money for that license and that, li that license is expensive i don't know how much they pay i don't know if it's a percentage i don't know if it's off the cuff thing but um you know the 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 license costs that amazon paid uh for rings of power were somewhere on the order of like what half a billion dollars or something like that mm -hmm. um so i think we can inf i mean obviously games workshop isn't paying that but i think we can infer that it's not small and that's a cost that they have to shoulder and their competitors don't and, um, and I, I just just yeah. the, the, I've spoke I spoke to Rick Priestley about this sort of thing before. Um, check yeah. out my YouTube channel. Um, it, uh, he he basically said that um, Games Workshop's uh, license for New Line Cinema was one of New Line's most profitable licensing deals that they'd ever made, or something along those lines, because um, they never expected a toy deal as they saw it to be delivering money fifteen years after the release of the first film. So so I, I think um, I think it is percentage-based but I, I i've only heard that via the guy who wrote the rules and um, so uh, in in answer to that yeah of course um they make they they have paid a lot of money and and i guess i love the fact that they have the the rights to spot it specifically and they have the talent and they have the skills to make really nice models i mean perhaps this numenor guy i showed earlier isn't quite as nice as 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 this one now but um glorfindel or whatever the latest release is um is you know, is definitely very nice. And um, so I guess they deserve uh, the, the the sort of the license in that sense. Um, I guess 
the the difficulty comes when when the way it, it's all about perception, isn't it? Because if you play the game and you think, well, you've bought the monopoly, as we're calling it, um, over the rights to make these miniatures, and then you maybe release one model every six months. That's Glorfindel, and then slightly before that, it was uh, the Osgiliath box set, or before that, you know, it, it's not exactly a weekly or even monthly um, release schedule anymore. Um, and I think there's on average two books a year. I, I, there is a slight argument from, the, and you make some of your um, uh, a lot of the range isn't at, in stock anymore. So you're kind of buying the rights to a monopoly that that even you you yourself aren't actually delivering on, which um, it, it's it's frustrating because you think, well, I, we have have the monopoly on this market and we're we're dictating supply so that you can only have one set of camels or whatever per however many months that they release a certain amount of made to order models and and i guess that's frustrating and you know but on behalf of those people who really do like the idea of the models and really want to support games workshop to supply those models because they're just not there so um i guess could have they paid for that license purely so that somebody else doesn't take it away and not you know and do better with it and you know are they essentially doing what the 3d printer person is doing by printing a model that 3d person printer person is saying right i'm printing a galadriel for free so that uh and i'm taking money away from games workshop but our games workshop going well i'm buying the license so i'm taking the money away from whoever warlord games for example so that they can't have the license to make Lord of the Rings miniatures and make money. So um, I guess that's the argument. I, I don't know whether I fully agree with it, but um, there, there's there's certainly value in there, and that that's quite apart from the copyright and moral stuff. So so James, let me, let me flip this back to you then, um, and let me let me try and characterize Harry's argument. And Harry, if I and, and I'm going to expand on it a bit. And Harry, if I say something wrong, let me know. Um, but you know, the the res the response to the license argument from like the random guy who's 3D printing would probably be something along the lines of this, right? Look, I get the Games Workshop and New Line Cinema signed a contract, and I and I get that Games Workshop um, bought some rights from New Line Cinema, but I wasn't in on that contract. Um, you know, I, I didn't sign any contract. I didn't get any money. Um, I, I understand that I can't copy exactly what, um, games workshop did. And I understand I can't use the likeness of somebody who's, who's trademarked, but look, all I want to do is print a bunch of generic dwarfs, right? Cause I can do that a lot cheaper than games workshop can. And in some circumstances, they're going to look better than the ones that James workshop games workshop does. And you can't trademark a dwarf. Um, so, uh, so why shouldn't I be able to do that? I, I think you should be able to do that. It's just in what, where are you then going to go and use them? That's, that's the thing. So if you want to go and play with your generic dwarf with your friends or at a gaming club that allows it or a tournament that allows it. I don't think there's a problem with that at all. Um, certainly not against that in any way, shape or form. I think that the people who want to support the game, whether things are out of stock or not, will eventually come around to support the game and buy the miniatures when they're in a position to anyway. They're going to want to have the originals in a way that Harry was kind of saying for himself, like you want this, it's been made really, really well. That's good. And I also think there is a distinct and important distinction to be made between 
because let's say, I mean, this is only one step up from something which has been massively celebrated in, in our community and hobby, you know, I suppose since the beginning, which is you know, people have made things out of green stuff themselves and sculpted incredibly talented people for a long time. And we've been like, wow, this is amazing. I think it's more because of like the scale of it and when it is then being pushed to marketed, right? And, and then it's also the setting in which you use it. So, you know, like, I do think it would be wrong for somebody to try and get that stuff off and then go to an official games or extra tournament. Obviously, they wouldn't be allowed to. They know that that's the case. That would be something which is stepping across the line of what's expected, you know, there. But in terms of, I want to get some random dwarves, or even in Harry's case, you know, that Galadriel, his friend's done it for him. He might really enjoy painting that and he might want to put it on the table with friends, but he's not going to turn up to the Grand Tournament of Warhammer with, with it or, or Ardacon with it or expect to be able to. So, you know, the concept, the context is is everything here. Can I just, because you mentioned the quality, because uh, I brought it up earlier. Um, it, while I've been moving this ring, uh, this model around, I've broken the sword off the end. So uh, that, that says something about 3D printed models, um, at the very least. I mean, it's considerably cheaper than a Games Workshop sword that's broken, but yeah. Uh, it's broken quite quickly. <laughs> so, so Devin, I want to bring in, bring the, bring you in on this. So, I, I printed up my random army of dwarves, and you know, maybe I've, I've, I've been a good boy, and I've gone and I've got my characters from Games Workshop, um, uh, or at least you know my 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 characters that kind of look, you know, I, I've got my Gimli from Games Workshop because you know Gimli's trademarked. Um, uh, you know. Can I bring them to Nova? Should I be able to bring them to Nova? So I think when a tournament organizer thinks about whether or not they want to accept purely just GW miniatures or not, their first thought is, is this being sponsored by GW in any capacity? Is it like being supported a lot? And and so with Articon, I think that makes total sense. With Nova, that's generally not. Um, so, okay. Um, out of respect for... You know, like, let's say sometimes we've seen the GW team come from the middle of the team. They've came to Nova uh, more often than not. And even though it's not being supported directly by them or anything like that, out of respect for them, I may not allow certain companies. So certain companies that do exactly what we talked about, IP infringement, mass marketing, mass distribution of miniatures that are clearly like Tolkien likeness of, of the movies, the films, whatnot. If it is very obvious what they are trying to represent, then maybe out of pure respect for them, I will stop the models from attending. I won't probably stop random Anglo-Saxon being, you know, pretending to be a, a Rohan or Dunlendi warrior. Um, so, okay. Now, as long as the IP infringement is out of the way, um, out of respect for those hosts, and I'll get into a scenario where they're not in there, but like basically out of respect, then yeah, probably not. Um, in that case, if it's random, if it's made by another company and, and it's clearly just meant to represent, I have allowed that. And, and a lot of people who have come to Nova have noticed that some players actually have like total random medieval warriors representing Gondor. And as long as the opponent is not confused, then cool, the game goes on. And we've actually never had a problem with this. Um, so not really against that. Uh, I do understand the... It, so why did I ever allow that to begin with? was actually some of the points Harry mentioned, which is cost. A lot of the community would not have been able to participate in the rising of of like back what james mentioned back in the day where pretty much the game was dying well gw was actually slowly reducing what it would produce so like 
the models just simply were not available. So if I did not allow third-party miniatures, not the infringement ones, those didn't really even exist. But once again, IP infringement in the sense of mass marketing, mass production, not what is on Harry's desk right now. <laughs> I don't care about that. <laughs> so, um, so basically, you know, if I had not allowed third-party miniatures, there is a whole host of players who would have been totally barred from using their favorite profiles in the game because they just simply could not get them. So unfortunately, my position throughout the years has had to be, you know, now it doesn't have to be as much, but from before it had to be, yeah, allow GW, uh, non-GW miniatures into the game. Can now the position me? though is that. Go ahead. Sorry, I was just going to say, because the, the, you, you mentioned a few times, like and, and James mentioned as well, the, the companies, those uh, those ones, whether the, before they were making third-party miniatures, I can think of a couple of names. Like, Yo, we don't have ones. to mention the names. No, we don't have to, but yeah, there, yeah. there's a couple of ones that people will probably have heard of, and then there's now the 3D-printed ones. Yeah. I, I'm intrigued at the, the idea that we should ban these company these companies miniatures specifically as opposed to um the this this one that my mates designed for example because because yeah. ultimately um one of them the 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 mass produced one means that more people will be playing the game more people will be buying the book more people will be buying paints and blah 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 and, and painting those miniatures uh the other is a massive barrier to it so you know so this guy might be really talented he's designed this or you know uh, james was mentioning people who convert models and mm. um, they're incredibly talented if you can do it really well and um, you know i've had a go and i've made some that are okay but you know, the the point the point of this 3d printing thing is that it, it kind of democratizes that and says you can you can by you can be a conversion you can do a conversion yourself by just plugging it into a i don't know how they work i think it's a lot more complicated than i think but you just print it out rather than um having to put you know loads and loads of, of kind of time learning how to mold green stuff so I, I i guess one means that we can have lots of people playing the game and mm. the other means you know we have maybe a few extra people who can convert stuff but we are putting others off because because as you say you, you know you're reducing the amount of Games Workshops model specifically available. So the times where James was referring to before, back when Novaverse started, mm -hmm. I allowed third-party miniatures and 3D printing was like not a thing. Yeah. Um, you know, sure, there was like Shadow and Flame who could convert out of green stuff a, a beautiful, fantastic figure. But as you mentioned, like most people weren't going to be able to do that and whatnot. So, you know, they used historical miniatures. I never really had an issue with that. But the, as far as what you're referring to with these, and, that, and that's how... That's how those players get into the game. Generally, that. For the most part, most everything in Lord of the Rings is represented in some fashion in some historical miniatures game. Barring like odd one out like a Balrog, usually you can find it somewhere else. And I'm okay with that. Whatever. You know, so, um, you know, that allows them to get into the game, in my opinion. The, the one where third-party companies are mass-producing is, is purely out of kind of a respect thing. Mm -hmm. Um so the Middle Earth team has expressed to me personally that they are pretty much against those companies. And that's where I have to admit, like James, it has become more of a personal thing to me versus uh, maybe an overall ethics. It, it's uh, my actual friends, people I know about, care about, are upset about this. It is actually hurting them. And it is actually something that where they cross the line and that therefore is a line that I've, I've created for them. Now, what you're referring to with a, someone created a model and obviously I know you need the three printers or access someone with it, but it, I, 
from my understanding, and I, I'll admit I probably have a limiting understanding of what their opinion is on these, but it's just a file, and the file is not being like mass marketed, mass produced for like profit. And it's not really actually affecting their company from what I'm understanding. So that's kind of where the line is being drawn is what affects Rob Alderman and what doesn't. And, and, and that's kind of, or at least from my understanding of it, that's kind of where I'm at with Nova specifically, which is an event that they yeah. do occasionally, you know, you know, they support. I guess Let that's the difficulty oh, here is that, that, sorry, Devin and James, you know, you both run events. You've been mm. embedded in the community since this, since, you know, those early days when mm. it was, uh, it was tricky. And, you know, I, I know, I know Rob and I know uh, Adam and, and Jay and, and quite a few of the other uh, Middle Earth team. And, you know, I, 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 f- I feel bad. Uh, I, I feel bad for them if, if 3D printing did put them out of a job. Of course I would. I like mm. that's nobody wants that. Um, and I guess it's, it's just difficult for those people who, have never met them. They don't care. Yeah. And, and, and they're yeah. also going, why the hell have I not got Citadel Guard or whatever it is that they want on the yeah. website? Why is it still out of stock? You know, I can understand that. I just let, let me let me put a pin in that, Harry, because I want to get get back to that notion of um, you know, games workshop and we don't want to put people out of work. And I, I want to dig into this idea that that I think everybody's kind of drawn that there's a difference between um, you know, somebody who's just printing a bunch of figures for their own personal use or for their friends and for companies who are monetizing this. Mm-hmm. Um, and we all think intuitively, and I, and I, and I do too, that there's, there's kind of this moral or ethical difference between the two of these. And I want to see if I can un- unpack why that is. Um, you know, I, I think I know, and it comes back to the, comes back to the, the idea of the license. Right. Um, and, you know, one one answer to the question I, I posed James earlier about, you know, look, I, I didn't sign a contract with you know, Games Workshop or New Line. Why should I kind of be bound by this arrangement they had? Is that because Games Workshop went ahead and did this, they went and purchased the license. Um, what they've effectively done is subsidized all the other miniature mar- marketers out there because they've gone and they've taken on this cost that's involved in you know buying the right to produce the rules because if the rules didn't exist then none of these other miniature marketers would be able to make money yeah, the true. ones who are who are selling stuff um and games workshop on its own has kind of shouldered all of this cost and when i as a, you know generic you know miniature reproducer or generic um uh um you know generic 3d printer go ahead and print money or not print money um print figures what i'm doing is i'm making money off of this market that games workshop has paid to create and i haven't done anything i haven't paid into that right um and, and i think that's kind of what's bothering us about you know this idea of kind of mass marketing for money and and why it may be a problem because you know there's there, there's kind of this this free there's this free thing out there that Games Workshop has um, has uh, has created that that I'm kind of I'm grabbing onto as a 3D printer who's out there on my own and you know I I think Games Workshop has a legitimate gripe there yeah. to say you know look I you know I, we we spent a tremendous amount of 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 money and effort to create these rules. Um, and then somebody else is just kind of going out and, and getting it. I mean, do it, 
have I captured it? Is that really kind of what's bothering us about about this? Well, I don't think they would. Most people would articulate it that way, but that is definitely a good point. Um, you know, I think for from the American scene, the general gist is okay. You know. <sighs> You know, I think obviously these small miniatures companies are too small to sue or anything like that. So obviously it's just kind of deal with it. Um, I think most Americans will often see it as like, well, produce far better miniatures and no one will care, which, you know, for anyone who has their third, fourth, 15th copy of Aragorn, uh, clearly (laughs) like we're willing to buy miniatures that um, even though another cheaper alternative source exists, like, you know, like I'm pretty sure Harry right now, regardless of let's say Harry didn't even play this game, hadn't even heard of it before, but just loved Rings of Power. If GW produces a fantastic, beautifully sculpted miniature, he's probably going to get it. Like, you yeah, know, the sword, and, the sword wouldn't break either. Yeah, the sword <laughs> wouldn't break. So, right. Devin, so I think some Americans window, wouldn't see it that way. If I'm Games Workshop, right? Yeah. Um, I'm going to make, let, let, let's say Games Workshop mm-hmm. and a third-party 3D printer can make miniatures of equal quality. And by the way, I think that they can. I think, oh, yeah, it costs I think we've money. reached the point where 3D printers can make miniatures of just as of quality, which is just as good as, as Games Workshop. And there are a few that are out there, you know, if not better. The, the problem for Games Workshop is it's always going to be less profitable for them to do it because they have to per se... They have to pay percentage of whatever they make on the thing to New Line, and the 3D printer doesn't. Yeah, and to and for the production, you know, the mass production cost for having employing people to write the rules and to manage the team and to discuss a strategy of where yeah. to take the yeah. a lot more cost kind of involved. But I am interested to know, like, I have zero insight into this, and I imagine nobody here has this insight. But is it a big problem? For games workshop because i don't know whether this is just kind of a naive perspective for me obviously it's there but i always get the feeling that if you were somebody even if you're in a position from a barrier to entry perspective from a financial point of view that ultimately you you would end up wanting to have the, the official models like anyway mm. I don't, you know, assuming they look good uh to the player yeah i think most players would I, yeah, I, think, so I think in the same way that I was saying before about, you know, like there being dodgy cable boxes or pirate DVDs, like most people, even though they know that that's there, don't end up going that way. You know, yeah, I, think I mean, look at the look at the, sort of, like, the iTunes and Spotify and all that other world that, you know, there was a time when people could download music for free uh, and they did. And then iTunes and Spotify came along and then people were like, oh, OK, I'm going to pay for it again. Yep. And, and I, I agree with you, James, that like I don't even know if it actually is a problem. I know that, you know, the, the Middle Earth team has expressed dislike for some of those companies, those third-party companies doing this. But, I mean, I, is the CEO seeing this the same way? Like, I'm not I, th- I really think the sure. difference between this and what has happened in the past was, in the past was, you know, there was a company in Russia or whatever um, cast, recasting or designing very similar space marine models or whatever and they could easily go okay we can shut that down um and they will because they'll bring a you know get they've got a lawyer and blah blah and they'll do it and um, whereas with this um anyone can get a printer for as i understand it around 100 quid and then they can be buying the resin for you know a few more quid and then they can be printing it straight away whether or not like i don't want to do that because it sounds like a pain in the ass and i, I hate assembling plastic yeah. models <laughs> as it is without having to deal with all the other stuff that comes with printing but 
I think the the I don't, I don't think you're naive, James. I just think that it's we're on a kind of fulcrum point where it could tip one way. And I do think that it, it could be that, you know, everywhere has 3D printers because they're very effective at lots of different things, not just printing models. And they, they, they're going to be on our doorstep. And the more they're there, the more I think Games Workshop needs to go, OK, these are here. Maybe we should make sure everything is in stock. And then we're not providing another barrier for those people to push them into the 3D printed mark, mark, uh, Just two world. points. Uh, just a question for you, Harry, if, you've, if mm. you know the information, because obviously it's really interesting yeah. to hear that poll and to hear that it kind of swayed in that direction and yeah. also the reason for it, which are completely valid, you know, the, mm. the valid reasons. Um, in terms of the people that were responding, were they, as Devin said, was it more of an international following where, you know, prices might be quite a bit different or was it felt domestically? Like, what, what I was th- your I think, assessment? Yeah, that, that's a fair point. It, what, just to just clarify, it wasn't a poll. It was just people who were getting in touch. So I don't I, I don't have a kind of exact percentage, but, you know, of the 20 or so emails I got in, um, most of them were broadly in support of, of, uh, of, of the... Maybe we should do a poll uh, of, of 3D printing. Um, yeah, there are a lot of uh, Australians, for example. Um, I know it's uh, much more expensive in Australia to get the models initially and um, stock availability is a similar issue. There were lots of UK people who said, yeah, I'd, I'd be fine with it, but you know, I'm still supporting Games Workshop. I still go to tournaments and, and I'm still happy to do it. Um, so I, I think there's probably a geographical element to this too. And But again, you know, I, I kind of think... In, in some ways, I think this 3D, whole 3D printing thing, if it is an issue, Games Workshop should is probably aware of it. The Middle Earth team are clearly aware of it. They know that it's it's upsetting them or annoying them or frustrating them or whatever. What I'd like to see is Games Workshop go, you know what? OK, we, we hear you. So let's solve those issues. And maybe, it, yeah. And, and I think that would make a lot of the people who are who are supporting 3D printing who've emailed me. I think it would go up. It would it would spin them back to Games Workshop. So I I, I don't I don't disagree with what you're saying at all. Mm. You know I think we'd all prefer a situation where there was a full range that was fully in the time. You know that there was a model for every single profile. We all want that, and we yeah. are in good faith that that is the kind of direction that we want to move to. And in order for mm. that to happen, maybe we have to kind of support it in the first place. But just on the point of barrier barrier to entry i mean yes obviously research there are certain armies out of stock and they tend to be a lot of these older metal armies right that we kind of wait for them to come back generally that would be a fair assessment yeah i I think so yeah but you know it's not there is still a much larger percentage of the range which is available and also and this i mean obviously this doesn't benefit games workshop at all directly but in terms of access to play the game i mean lord of the rings because it's got such a a historical um you know i suppose cultural aspect to the the games workshop element of it and and making models in the early 2000s you know you can find armies of this stuff for relatively cheap on ebay and have been Mm -hmm. able to for a long time so I think that while somebody might have a preference that, oh, I want to run like a, a, a metal hobbit army and I can't get that right now. And I don't think that that would necessarily be the thing that would put somebody off the game. I don't think that their whole thing of, I, I think it might almost be, and maybe I'm going more in the devil's advocate bit here <laughs> that you're, that you're doing Matt, but you know, almost slightly like a, a slightly disingenuous, you know, reasoning, because I think that there is probably always a way to, 
be able to put yourself in a position to play this game. Let's say, you know, it's not very immersive, but even like paper dollies and that, but we don't have to do that. You can go on eBay and buy like Urukai and Warriors and Ministeria from Rohirrim and stuff for pence, mm. for absolute pence. Now that's not to do with the benefits of Games Workshop at all, but I'm just talking in terms of that barrier injury. All of us, I think, would prefer to have a full range. I think that if you spoke to those friends, members of the community, who now are employees, they would say that that is what they are working towards. It's just not big enough. And then you could say, well, then is it the continued responsibility of the community to keep on supporting it so that we're moving in a direction? Are we not putting ourselves in a situation where we're getting further away from it potentially by, well, okay, well, I'm just going to go, I'm going to go elsewhere and I'm never going to end up buying that army, even if Games Workshop do bring it back into production. Because that's another point as well. I think that even if you, let's say you did buy a third party, you know, we're going to continue to use the Shire example because that's the only one I can think of. I'm going to buy a third party Hobbit army. Then when that comes back into, I think the people that would want to support the game and are invested in the game and want to play the game would probably, particularly in the UK where we've got tournaments that obviously, um, you know, are supported by, and obviously we've got the, the official Games Workshop ones and the like, would probably be inclined to be like, well, do you know what? I really want to be able to take a Hobbit army to, you know, Throne of Skull. So I want to get the real thing now that it's up and I'll probably sell on this third party one. I think there's probably more people that would do that, I think, than not. And I also think as a potential solution for Games Workshop, because I'm... I, Mind you, I don't know how big of a problem this is financially, which, of course, is always the bottom line. Yeah. Um, I don't know how big of a problem it is. But actually, a way around this, because there is such a big global tournament scene now, is if there is more... I mean, they, they kind of try to do that a little bit with the match play guide to some varying degrees of success. But if there was more organized play support and that one of the stipulations of that was you know you know if you are going to get organized play support if you're going to be part of this document if we're going to promote you on this site somewhere or whatever it might be and we're going to send out this pack to you and there's some kind of benefit for doing it you know but all model but you have to follow the rules of the match play guide one of which of course is you can only work use games virtual miniatures i think that more more tournament organizers do it. and I think more players would probably be inclined to be like well you know what you know even if I can't afford to go on to Forge World to get the latest Iron Hills army you know which you know obviously costs a fortune I'm not then going to go to somebody that's you know indirectly potentially negatively affecting the game to buy from there I'm going to go on eBay and I'm going to pick up an Urukai army and I'm going to do you know Assault on Helm's Deed you know which we all love yeah. or whatever you know what I mean like relatively cheaply um, in order to do that, I think, I think you hit it spot on with that. I, uh, well, I, I just no, I mean, the fact is, uh, James created a you know, it's a solution where the company itself is actually responsible for finding the solution, which is you creating that loyalty toward the brand itself. Which is, you know, you mentioned tournaments that are sponsored. In my opinion, if this is a problem for GW of 3D printing models, which inevitably, if not already, will be you know, cheap enough to mass produce at like very good quality for a very cheap price, then this is not just a problem for Lord of the Rings. This is a problem for their entire company. And like everything there is all based on models. So like essentially brand loyalty, the whole reason we go to Starbucks and spend triple the price on something we can get cheaper 
exists. They have to just create that, which you can see GW is already kind of doing. They're spreading their IP of their products in 40K and, and fantasy into magic cards and, and video games and all of this stuff. And they're trying to make it as big a thing ever. It's essentially the same exact tactic. Plus, we also see that having a miniature already, even if it's cheaper, doesn't stop us from buying the same miniature of either a higher quality or different pose. Everyone who has multiple versions of all these different characters can see that. So therefore, and, and then you have the final factor of James is bright. They're just going to go on eBay. You could always find them cheaper if you really, really, really want to find it cheaper. So if you just turn the game into a product where... And once again, I'm not the CEO of a gaming company, so I don't really know, but I'm just assuming that if you if you make it where these are uh, like almost collectibles, like who's not going to go buy that new Glorfindel figure if you can afford it? Like it, it's like a collectible item. It's such a beautiful, fantastic model that even if, you know, another one exists, which in brand it does, people will still go out and get it. So I think that companies have demonstrated for years that it doesn't matter if you can find the product cheaper. It doesn't matter if like, you know, uh, it, if you can find it mass produced somewhere else, you will still buy if you're loyal to the company and the IP of that company. I, that's just my thought. I think the company itself finds a solution for that. I think James well, just so I the think problem is, is it up to the up to Games Workshop to do that. I think it needs yeah. to recognize the issue and then do it. Sorry, go on, yeah. Sorry. Sorry. So the problem with brand loyalty, right, is that brand loyalty is a premium, and brand you know people people being willing to pay a premium for brand loyalty depends on how much money they have to spend because mm -hmm. essentially when you're when you're buying when you're when you're paying a brand loyalty premium you're buying nothing um except except the ability to say see i've got my you know louis vuitton bag or my games workshop miniature it's and probably the richest miniatures company in the world <laughs> uh, yeah our, i mean if anyone can afford brand loyalty whom is also merging with some of the major what? video game card game yeah no that's, that's, to be fair all, all of that is all of that is fine it's the um the, the warhammer ip not the lord it of is. rings ip and, but, and yeah. it wouldn't surprise me if they were to go well we don't need lord of the rings anymore yeah it would not surprise me either i'm just saying though if brand loyalty on the company side is what they're going for just at least like i don't know what the profits of lord of the rings are but clearly if they were thinking about getting rid of it once before and if they're limiting skews which we know that they're doing if they're limiting you know middle or space it's probably not a high percentage of their profits the lord of the rings game but i you know but i'm not sure that for a good chunk of their customer base that brand loyalty is really the the business model they want to be in because a good chunk of their customer base are people who don't have the extra cash to to pay for brand loyalty some of them are i certainly will i'm i'm in that i'm in that range of of income level but a good chunk of them aren't, and a good chunk of them are going to, if they have a choice between, you know, a $5 Gimli and a $35 Gimli, they'll buy the $5 Gimli. But um, I think they're deciding very clearly that they don't want to be the market to give you the cheap $5 Gimli. They, they want to be they, premium buyer. They but hang on. So, but pause for a second. Why do, why do they have to do that, right? So this is... Well, I don't know their profit. <laughs> like, I don't, but, but, but all right. So let me finish, though. Um, you know... Nobody Games Workshop can buy 3D printers just as easily as anyone else can. And they can buy 3D printers in a lot more volume. Because one of the arguments that I always hear from Games Workshop itself as to why stuff goes out of production and why it's not available, 
um, is because, well, we don't, we don't have the manufacturing capacity. We've got limited manufacturing capacity. We've got limited shelf space. Um, and in this day and age, I don't understand why that, why that is true. Um, because you, you can buy a license. You can also issue sub licenses and there's plenty of people that are out there that games workshop could just contract with to say, look, you are the guys we're going to give you a license for you know this much money to print dwarves right and you're going to be the guys that you, you can you can print dwarves and you can sell them through our site or whatever but you know we're going to contract with you and you're going to supply us with dwarves and if somebody orders dwarves then go down to your basement pull a box of dwarves and send it to people probably worried uh, about quality control yeah but but you can do all this right i mean there's Plenty of companies around the world do this. In fact, I think Games Workshop may be like the only company around the world that hasn't exported its manufacturing to someplace else that has cheaper labor costs. And that would essentially be what this would be doing. And it's a way for Games Workshop to, A, expand the number of figures that are out there so that people can get there, and B, reduce their costs for doing that so that they can make more profit and they can afford to pay that subsidy to, to New Line. And I'm not sure if there's I'm not sure if there's uh, something in their licensing agreement that prevents them from doing that. But... This is a this is a, this is now a, a real economic discussion about yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean the, the ethics of the conversation is like why doesn't the company fix the problem versus why is it up to the players to decide if it's ethical and instead, you know, have the company figure out a way to make this not an issue anymore and i think that's yeah. what a lot of the people emailing into the podcast were like saying you know they were saying well look we really like the rule system i think everyone here will agree that the rule system is very good and yeah. it's it's also well looked after and um, you know the faqs uh seem to keep it in line pretty much and balance notice it out no one's lot. trying to manufacture the rule book yeah so, exactly yeah <laughs> so so i and i think and i guess that everyone was saying right i really want to play this game I really want to play that army. I really want to play this army, and that's that's what a lot of people are saying is that. But you know, maybe maybe, maybe you're right, Matt. And, and actually, so I was going to bring that exact point up. But some somebody did suggest in in, in their uh, comment and podcast about uh, essentially why don't those those companies that um, we're not naming here that that do regularly make and um, pretty good quality. Or I've never actually seen them in the flesh, but they look pretty good quality three D printed models. Why don't Gabe do it up just? you know, give them the license to make Rohan Royal Guard or whatever, because they can clearly. Um, That's what Microsoft would do, right? If you've yeah. got if you've got a competitor that you, you know, you can't compete with, you buy it. Mm -hmm. Um and Games Workshop certainly has the the assets to do that and kind of bring I, them in. Yeah. I think um, we probably might all agree that this is a company problem to solve. I think what those who advocate for using the actual miniatures usually come from two camps, which is one, I paid the money, so why shouldn't you? Which I think is a pretty weak argument, honestly. But yeah, that's that's um, not an argument. Move yeah. <laughs> but they do come from that camp. I see it a lot. Yeah. Uh, but also too, if if you know it will the game die as a result of you know, uh, not supporting GW. I and think I think that's a, that's a stronger argument. Though, isn't that it? is the argument. Because like, ultimately, ha, ha, can they make the profit out of the rules alone? Like enough to pay however many, I don't know. I mean, you could argue, yeah. does does somebody need to be earning whatever they're earning, writing rules, uh, a one rule book a year or two rule books a year? You no. know, I. but yeah, obviously well, it, the license and all that sort of stuff as well. It's but. the license, right? Because that the, the subsidy comes from the fact that uh, of the rules, right? Because they they need the license to make the rules. Without the rules, the game doesn't function. And 
you know, if, if Games Workshop stops doing that, the game dies. But mm-hmm. if you put if you put the whole cost of the license on the rules, the rules I'm willing to bet would cost like you know two hundred dollars a set, and nobody would buy them. Mm-hmm. So they can't do that. Or someone would print a book. Make, <laughs> yeah, well, that's they the have thing. to make are, the people already do that. There are PDFs out there, aren't there? Because yeah. yeah, and you do get them. But but it's interesting though that that far fewer people um, have. Uh, sort of, you know, spread the rules around via, via PDF. I mean, I, I've definitely seen despite them. the fact that that's actually cheaper to mask. It's so much cheaper. It's so much cheaper. Yeah, um, so but like, uh, uh, but but we all, I, I think, I'm willing to bet yeah. that everyone watching this channel has a physical copy of the rule book or maybe an official PDF as well, uh, uh, the one that comes on on your iPad or whatever. So, or maybe it, both I, of those are multiple copies of both of those. Yeah, so. exactly. Yeah, exactly. So. I, I just think it's it's interesting though that that you know we we're, we're perceiving a problem here with with the models, not the not the rules. That's good. So uh, if Games Workshop wants to sort itself out and be both a miniature gaming company as well as a rules making company, it kind of needs to wake up and understand that three D printing is an issue that it needs to deal with because um, it can't probably rely on the people like. Devin and me and and James and and Matt who who all are willing to buy the official models as well or or it just won't grow the well, game. I'd be either. pretty shocked if the company hasn't woken up to this idea. More yeah. so, they probably and what all of us fear that whoever's making the decisions doesn't regard Lord of the Rings as profitable enough to fight that fight. And yeah, you know, and so you know, the thing I'm looking at is I don't I think for that second question, the fear of the game going away. The two things I've got from all of us talking is this, we seem to all agree that regardless of the availability of cheaper models on eBay, third-party knockoffs or whatnot, people can still to buy, they still continue to buy the real model. So therefore, if that is profitable, then the game is probably not going away because at the pace that they're selling miniatures currently, despite the availability of all these other things, and and I don't think the collective weight of people like me and James who have a personal attachment to the you know, the, the crew that runs this game. I don't think that's going to be enough to keep this company profitable within that sector. So that continues to happen. People will continue to buy more models. And, and that seems to be irregardless of cheaper available products, whatnot. Brand recognition is possible within, you know, GW because they only need the company to really like I get their marketing 40K, but reasonably, if you're going to buy a Glorfindel figure, you just need to at least know GW exists. And then at least that starts the conversation. And so, you know, higher quality products, as we've already seen, sure, that could be replicated. But I mean, I don't know. I don't see the game going away. Like just from that side of things, I think if this CEO probably looked at the numbers, he looked at the numbers the previous CEO who wanted to kill the game saw. And if that if the game uh, being destroyed is, is the argument, then I, I think that would have already been done. I think they also know as long as they retain this license, which it probably is being grandfathered in at some price that works for them, then people will continue to make, like, as we see with the Amazon series, people are going to continue to create movies about this. I mean, the reason we don't see a Lord of the Rings movie is because who wants to touch the one from 2001, right? Like, that still holds up even if it was made today. But people are going to continue to create knockoffs, spinoffs, whatnot, and then you keep absorbing all of that. And if, like, the Amazon show was a hit, like, a massive hit, like, regardless of your opinion on it, like a massive hit, the, the equivalent to what we saw before, I think then the company would ramp back into it. So I think the company knows that. People are going to keep creating stuff out of it. There seems to be some attachment of the company to the Lord of the Rings line. Uh, I'm not sure how, but they seem to be pretty attached to it. So 
I don't think it's going to go away. I'm okay with people buying other miniatures um, for tournaments. I mean, I don't know. I feel like that kind of almost is the discussion. Let me know if I just went on a tangent for nothing. <laughs> can, I make, can, I make a, can I make a final point before I yes, shoot Skeletor to rainbows? Yeah. <laughs> I've told her to get changed in the bathroom so she's not in here while you guys are all here. And then we're going to have to shoot off. Um, I think that obviously we are ill-informed from a you know hard facts perspective yeah. here and the bottom line discussion you know we we can see it in terms of the people that play the game but you know there are many people who we we know don't play the game but buy the miniatures as collectors and we don't know what kind of uh, market that is and how much bigger that is and i'm also of the belief as well that having the license for middle earth is also incredibly useful a useful tool for games workshop when it comes to getting their other IPs into certain situations, because you know people might not have heard of Space Marines, but everybody's heard of Aragorn, you know, and Lord of the Rings. So I believe that it's quite a useful tool in terms of getting them into various shops and outlets, and and obviously getting the other side of it there. It's one that it's kind of the the uh, an easy gateway drug, um, to use a phrase that I don't really want to have just said. <laughs> But she won't know what it means. Um, so, so I actually think that there that there is a lot of value in them having it that maybe extends outside of um, our gaming community. Mm. I don't feel that we neglected, and I think that the solutions are all relatively straightforward, which is to continue the path which they had been doing, which for some reasons, you know, not necessarily had been able to be as strong since COVID. Um, but as long as they continue to engage with the community. As long as they continue to have a commitment to supporting organized play and independent tournaments and organizers and engage in that size, I do think that there is probably enough, you know, so we're not necessarily talking about brand loyalty as a whole as Games Workshop, but I do think that there's enough goodwill, enough people who kind of want to buy the miniatures. I'm not sure how much of this is is actually a massive problem. It's just, you know, if someone's going to go and 3D prints and miniatures, um, they've just got to obviously know what what environment that's appropriate and what mm. environment is. And we've all said what? that we're in people mass producing it, market it and sell it. Probably not ethical because of all of these other costs. But actually for the individual who just thinks that Gladriel from Rings of Power is really cool and they want to paint up that miniature themselves and maybe with their friends, they want to play with that because they've done that, then you know, I don't think that's any different from from green stuffing something to be honest yeah so that's very much my closing thoughts and i'll have all to right yeah. so yeah i mean I, I will be curious thank you james well james all right james well good to have you on and <laughs> bye everyone Bye. Bye, guys. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I am really curious. Oh, he has to go. He has to go. I, I'll have to go pretty soon here, just a heads up warning. But yeah, no, I do too. But I mean, just for my parting thoughts, I mean, I guess I am also curious uh, at whether or not this is something where Games Workshop can continue to kind of muddle on um, making their money off of, you know, kind of brand premiums. Or whether this is, as Harry mentioned earlier, analogous to like the downloadable music. And I mean, what happened with downloadable music is the market changed, right? I mean, there's resistance at first to downloadable music and the industry said, come on, you know, we got to we got to protect our our licenses here and our IP and you should just kind of pay more money for CD. Um, but in the end, they shifted over to a different model 
the loud for, you know, basically they monetize downloadable music and they make less money off of each download, but they've created an economic model that kind of works. Um, and I wonder if 3D printing is going to end up being like that, where Games Workshop is going to be forced to change. And, and this is not unique to Lord of the Rings. I mean, mm. the way they do their business entirely is going to need to shift so that they kind of acknowledge 3D printing and create a business model that works in a world where 3D printing is a thing. And it'd be and, interesting to see if they do that. And I know I, it's something that one, one of my emailers said was that, you know, why can't they be the designers of miniatures and we be the printers? You know, cut out the, the postage system, cut out the uh, whatever. You know, we can, we can pay a subscription, I don't know, 10 quid a month. Uh, we get our rules on a PDF, and that's updated constantly, so we don't have to keep checking FAQs and um, struggling to search for the keywords. The fact that and... it's not a living rulebook already is blows my mind. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. It, that, that sort of thing would make sense. You know, you pay your £10 subscription, and with that, you know, you might get an option to buy a discounted downloadable thing that we all go, yeah, sure, we'll plug it into our printer, which also prints our everything else in life because you know imagining some sci-fi world where we don't need to buy anything we just print it like uh yeah some sci-fi universe i think it's a losing war if you if you're trying to like rely on the community banding together and saying we support gw so support this hobbit hobby that is a losing fight while that worked back in the day for reasons that we all discussed 3d printers didn't exist Right now, they're becoming more and more accurate. And of course, as all things more and more available, more cheap. But like, yeah, at this point, like this conversation, I imagine 10 years from now, it'll it'll be, you know, it'll just be almost obvious that people are going to show up to tournaments with 3D printed stuff. It's just the way I think it could be. It could be sooner than 10 years. It could be a couple of years. Oh, I just gave myself plenty of time to be right. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. Yeah. but or yeah, no, I agree. Just forget that you made the prediction. Either way, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Remember, guys, ten years from now, I called it. All right. <laughs> well, thanks everybody. Thanks, Harry. Um, this has Thank been you. great, and uh, see everybody again soon. Listen to it.